All right. Just another reminder about signing up back there on the emergency notification list that we never quite uh, – that in case we have an emergency or something like that, we can get the word out. Uh, Second, remember, Daylight Savings Times begins on Saturday night, November the 5th, and we're getting an extra hour of sleep. That's good because I'll be coming back from a prophecy conference in Albuquerque that night, so that will give me a little extra rest. Uh, Also, we have the Christmas boxes for Franklin Graham Samaritan Purse Ministry. The deadline for that is on uh, November the 13th, and there's information about that back in the fellowship hall. Also, the Grand Canyon trip, if anybody's interested, uh, let me know. We still have room for several people. And then this next announcement is one that I find most distressing. This comes from Danny Burroughs. Danny is an ex- uh, associate member of this congregation. He's a retired Air Force colonel, and he was a pilot for American Airlines. And for the last 12 years, he's been an election judge up in his part of the world, up near Longview. And he says, please get the word out. It has come to my attention that the voting machines in Texas may be compromised. The online news has many videos of straight Republican ticket votes marking Hillary. So maybe you need to vote individually. But there, I've heard that there have been reports on the news. I've been studying all day, but he is getting firsthand information. He says, today I spoke with my UPS driver who voted this morning in Gregg County. He voted straight Republican, and when he went to check the votes, nothing was checked. Hillary was not checked, but none of the Republicans were checked either. Had he not verified his vote, like many people do, he would have cast a ballot with no one on the Republican ticket receiving a vote. That was Greg counting voting machines today. He witnessed a man showing a voter's registration without an address. He failed to show a picture ID and said he was a judge in Smith County and was registered in Greg County. He said he did not have an address reported because he was a judge. They let him vote anyway. I immediately reported this to Rusk County Election Headquarters and the Secretary of State of Election, uh, Secretary of State Elections. Please get the word out that you must verify your votes before casting them to ensure a straight ticket vote actually does cast a vote. Any irregularities must be reported to the County Election Headquarters where you vote and the Secretary of State Elections Division. And then he gives information uh, on that, and he spoke with them today and said they assured him that they have attorneys on duty from 6 a.m. to answer these allegations and investigate. And then he said, they know me. I've been an election judge for over 12 years and speak to them regularly. So uh, just be forewarned and uh, about this and be in prayer about it because uh, it appears that uh, since the, there's no reports of voting a straight Democrat ticket and having Donald Trump name Donald Trump's name be checked, so it appears that somebody is trying to steal the election for the Democrats. So I'll stop with my opining at that point. We need to pray. Let's bow our heads. It'll take about thirty minutes to get back in fellowship. <laughs> And then we will open the word together. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful that we know that you control the details of life and you oversee history and you are the one that is in charge. Because when we read reports like the one Danny has sent us and and others that we're hearing on the news, it is distressing. And part of the reason for being so distressing is we feel like there's nothing we can do about it. But we can. We can come to you. We can pray. And we can put this in your hands and put our future and the future for this country in your hands. And, Father, we pray that you in your grace would uh, counter these nefarious schemes by unknown persons or organizations that are trying to um, do something to influence, to wrongly influence this election. We also know that there are many people and organizations in this country who have a real hatred for the literal meaning of the Constitution that we try to live by that guarantees our freedom and guarantees uh, our the observance of our inalienable rights that derive from you and not from government or from society, and that there is a true spiritual warfare on. And Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that our warfare ultimately is not against flesh and blood, but is against principalities and, and powers and authorities and uh, in darkness. And Father, we pray that you would uh, override these uh, devilish schemes to influence this country. We need a nation that is standing firm on the gospel, standing firm for truth, that can send missionaries out throughout the world and continue a support uh, for Israel as a homeland for uh, the Jewish people. And Father, we pray that you would override these things and and that even if it's your permissive will, for the election to go in a bad direction, that we would be able to relax and put our trust in you no matter what takes place, and that we would respond as always to whatever happens in, in with grace and with mercy and with trust in you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to First Samuel. We are in First Samuel chapter 18. And I have entitled this lesson, Mental Attitude Sins Versus Wisdom. The contrast that we see through this section in 1 Samuel between Saul and David highlights the difference between Saul, who is living on the basis of his sin nature and is consumed by these mental attitude sins that are having this uh, terrible effect on his soul, because that's what happens, whether it's overt sins, sins of the tongue, or mental attitude sins, they war against the soul. We've studied this in our study on Thursday nights in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts, Peter says, uh, which war against the soul. They are self-destructive. And we see a great illustration of this in what happens to Saul. This is also comes under the category of a form of demon influence because demon influence is the thinking of the devil as it is um, that is, as it goes through the intermediate means of various philosophies and theologies and uh, world views. So that's the one hand. We see the consequences of mental attitude sins of anger and hatred and fear on the part of uh, on the part of Saul versus David's wisdom 
and he gets his wisdom from the word of God and we see it played out in the difference in how he handles this situation now one of the things that we should think about as a as an applicational structure for this is that what David is facing is a form of testing that we refer to as people testing now i know everybody here is surrounded by people who don't have sin natures and who are wonderful and kind and loving but um uh, we have a real problem often with other people who are let their sin nature run run away with them, and they are jealous of us. They are hostile. They are just uh, cantankerous and grumpy because that's the nature of their sin nature. And sometimes they live with us, and sometimes they live next door to us. Uh, sometimes they work for us. Sometimes we work for them. And sometimes we work with them, and it's this area of people testing. How do you handle people testing without letting somebody else's sin nature start controlling your sin nature? And we see a great example of that even in in what I was talking about in the election, that if you have people who steal an election— how does that affect your mental attitude? How does that affect your ability to co- to face life and surmount the testing, whatever it may be? Because as Christians, we have uh, we are not to let our reactions be informed by the sin nature. We have to learn to walk in terms of grace and humility and trust the Lord rather than whatever uh, ideas we have to try to handle it in our own strength and in the flesh. So we see a basic outline through this section where God has anointed David, sending Samuel to anoint him as the next king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16, 1-13. Then we see that God promoted David without David going out to promote himself. And the principle there is if God doesn't promote you, you aren't promoted. Now, you may seem to be promoted, but a lot of people who appear to be promoted, it is self-destructive because God has not put them in that position. So God, uh, if you're not promoted by God, you're not really promoted. And God promotes David in 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen to 23, where uh, without David having to do anything, God works out a scenario with Saul where uh, the Spirit of God has left him, and God has, in his permissive will, allowed an evil spirit to test Saul. And so uh, in order to relieve him of that uh, demonic oppression, uh, Saul's own people call on, say, hey, we know d- this shepherd who can play the harp, and he can come in and relieve the problem. And so God promotes David. He's invited to the court. Then God gave victory to David over Goliath. We saw that in chapter 17. We see how God is now protecting David from Saul, who will attempt to uh, kill him again and again and again. And we'll see this between, now oh, I didn't correct that slide, between 1 Samuel 17.55 and 20.42. And then... Uh, David will go into exile, and he will live amongst amongst his enemies, the Philistines, and God will protect him uh, there in 1 Samuel 21 to the end of this book when God finally takes Saul out, and that's the end of Saul's uh, dynasty. 
In this section, which covers 1755 to 2042, God is protecting David from Saul. This is a very interesting passage and a very interesting session because we really see a development um, of, of Saul as a as a poster child for carnality, the poster child of mental attitude sin, the poster child of what happens when you go into complete rebellion against God. And so the first section, I said uh, the focal point there was whose son are you as uh, Saul wants to reward David. And he's basically saying, what's what's your family background? Who are they? I need to identify them so that I can uh, fulfill my reward to them, make uh, take them off the tax rolls, as well as the fact that he had promised that whoever defeated Goliath would marry his oldest daughter. And that comes to play in where we're going to study uh, this evening. So in the first uh, four verses of chapter 18, we see how Saul's family is beginning to shift their loyalty to David. And as a result of that, David's popularity will increase with the people. He becomes more and more popular with the people. They're singing their song that uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And, of course, that uh, is a comparison that is not favorable for Saul and is saying that David is ten times the warrior that Saul is. And, of course, he's going to react in uh, jealousy. He's going to react in envy. And as a result of that, he's going to, uh, again, want to take it out uh, on David. And so we're told then that God protects David, even though Saul is trying to uh, trying to kill him, and we talked about this last time that that um, Saul had tried to had tried to kill David, and uh, twice he had attempted to uh, spear David, but God protected him. And then uh, when when uh, David came to play music for him, or this uh, verse eleven, that uh, Saul uh, tries to pin him to the wall with his spear. And twice, we're told, David escaped. So that's the first two attempts on David's life. And then in verses 12 and 13, we're told that God is with David. The source of David's power is God's blessing upon him. God's blessing upon David is David has walked with the Lord. And, um, you know, God's bottom line on David is he's going to say, David is a man after my own heart. That doesn't mean David was perfect. As we get into subsequent chapters, we're going to see David was far from perfect. And uh, that always gives me great hope. Uh, because David is a great example of how everyone is still a sinner, even though saved. And we can f- fail just as miserably as David did, yet g- God recognized that even though David failed miserably, that David's ultimate desire, what truly motivated him, was to serve the Lord. It also lets us know that people can truly want to serve the Lord and struggle with their own sin nature. And even though their primary focus in their life is to serve the Lord and to do what the Lord wants them to do, they can fail miserably. That doesn't mean they're necessarily a spiritual loser or a failure because we can all uh, find times where we give in to the uh, to our own sin nature, and we fail at, at times. But we learn that God is with David, 
And because of David's time in the Word, he has developed wisdom. And again, in verse 14, it's repeated that the that uh, David behaved wisely, and the Lord was with them, with him. So the Word of God gave him the discernment that he needed to face the issues and the challenges that were in front of him. Now, the other thing that we see here is this, this cycle of sin. I talked about this last time, that we can observe this with Saul. I want to go over this again. And the thing to do is this is sort of a, a template that you can think through in terms of your own life. When you get angry, when you worry, when you're afraid, when you have other mental attitude sins, whether it's jealousy or envy or uh, hatred, anger, whatever it may be, you can go back and see how it fits into some of the things that we're talking about here to see what is going on in your own soul and your own thinking. We learned that from, for example, back in the New Testament, Galatians 5, 16 to 18, that we're either controlled by the sin nature or we are uh, influenced or, or walking by the Holy Spirit. One or the other, it's not a little bit of one, a little bit. That's real popular today among a lot of pastors is that, well, you have mixed motives in whatever you do. Well, Scripture says a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. If you've got a little bit of sin, that messes up the whole thing. Uh, You're either walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the sin nature, one or the other. When we stop walking by the Spirit, we default to sin nature control, and that always leads to the production of either personal sin or human good. A lot of folks don't realize that the sin nature produces morality. The sin nature can produce a lot of self-righteousness. That is exactly what we see depicted in the Pharisees during uh, the confrontations with Jesus. They are very religious. They're very moral. Uh, They have a facade of doing the right thing, and they deceive a lot of people. Uh, That is always true of certain kinds of leaders. They uh, say the right thing. They have a facade of doing the right thing, but the reality is that they are uh, corrupt on the inside, and they're doing something else. So we can produce morality, which is a cover-up, or we can produce personal sins. And sometimes you produce both because we're pretty complicated as uh, as people. And sometimes we can go back and forth from one hour where we are very moral uh, and the next hour we're not. And then we switch back. Uh, that's all part of the sin nature and sin nature control. And the result is that the longer we're involved in and uh, sin nature control, it produces spiritual dullness. We are less and less pers- uh, perspicacious about issues in life and, and their spiritual implications. We get involved in the arrogant skills of self-absorption, which leads to self-indulgence, which leads to self-justification. Self-justification leads to self-deception, and we convince ourselves of our own rectitude when we're just as wrong as we can be, and then we're believing the lie. And that is, and then we are setting up our own standards for our life rather than God's, and that is self-deification. Second thing is, as we continue to walk according to the sin nature, the ability to trust God becomes more and more difficult. Uh, 
it begins to shut down. We don't think of the faith option very much. We just get consumed by our own uh, sin and our own emotions and our own mental attitude sins. And so we begin to forget the doctrine that we have learned, and we begin to focus on wrong issues and wrong priorities. And the result of that is that we just suck in more and more false ideas. By the way, one of the greatest heretics of the 20th century uh, died this last Saturday. One of the great heretics and false prophets who has been responsible for leading millions and millions of Christians around the world, maybe even billions. His name was Peter Wagner, and he was the head of the, uh, yeah, Elbert knows who I'm talking about, and he's shaking his head. Yep, that's right. He was responsible. He was the head of the missions department at Fuller Seminary back in the 60s and 70s. He gave birth to what was known as the Vineyard Movement, along with John Wimber in the 70s and 80s. He, he, and he was virtually the grandfather of the whole church growth movement. So you think about any of the uh, mega churches in Houston, they are what they are because of Peter Wagner, and they don't teach what they should teach because of Peter Wagner. And um, he died this last last week. Uh, he the the latest round of heresy that he was involved in was uh, the apostolic church movement. He was going around, and they were, uh, along with several others who were involved in signs and wonders, they were um, identifying uh, the last days apostles. So this has led. I, I mean, the the degree of exposure. That, that this has brought into many churches is just unbelievable. But that's what it is. It's just these people who just suck up human viewpoint standards and, and worldliness and ideas, and then they, they repackage it and sell it to, uh, to churches and to Christians as the, the great way to have a big booming church and a, and a godly ministry, and it's all just, just the, they're just the devil's disciples. So then you have increased arrogance, and so these arrogant skills increase more and more, and the result is that uh, thinking is dominated by foolishness. People are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and it gets to the point where they can't even discern truth from error. They lose the uh, ability to understand reality as it is, and as a result, mental attitude sins will increase, especially fear and anger and hatred towards Christians and Christianity. The result of this is that they eventually go into, or they continue to go into idolatry, which is submission to false authorities in the place of God. And these can be mental attitude idols, such as greed and power and um, uh, many other things that, that come along. And they uh, idolize emotion. They idolize peer pressure, and they want that popularity and power. They idolize material possessions and the signs of wealth and pleasure and escapism and many false ideologies and religions. They basically deify the details of life. And the result of that is always going to be anger and frustration, depression, fear, which leads to self-induced misery and further attempts to mask the misery uh, through drugs, through alcohol, uh, through pleasure, 
through various forms of, of escapism, and that just opens the, more, the door to more demon, demon influence. Uh, one of the things I uh, recently learned was the, I've always known there was a certain level of drug uh, abuse among the leaders in the Nazi party during the 30s and 40s, but it was great. They were, they were doing meth. They were doing all kinds of things that that were supposed to produce these Aryan super warriors. So this was uh, very much part of um, of the Nazi philosophy, and that's just demonism. That's the word sorcery. The works of the flesh in Galatians five includes something that was translated far, uh, translated sorcery. It's the Greek word pharmakeia, where we get our word pharmacy. And it has to do with the use of drugs in an illicit way in order to develop uh, contact with uh, spirits, contacts with the gods, uh, in order to uh, develop one's own mystical powers, things of that nature. So this is the kind of thing that can happen even to Christians, to believers. So last time we got up to about uh, verse 12. Uh, talking about uh, Saul's fear, Saul's anger. And now let's go back looking at verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David. Fear dominates his soul. And he's afraid for a spiritual reason because the Lord is with David. And so somehow, some way in, in Saul's perception, he understands that, that he is being, um, he, he is at enmity with David because uh, God has rejected him. Da- uh, God has approved David. And so uh, that means David is his enemy because he is uh, blessed by God. And that is something that unbelievers especially intuitively understand. Uh, this, is, uh, this is why I think that many progressives many liberals who support the the influx of, of of Islam into Europe as well as here in the United States and they do not grasp the reality that the first thing that will happen when the Muslims get in control is that they will slaughter the homosexuals they will slaughter the liberal elites they will slaughter all of those who had influence. They bring them in. This is exactly what happened in Iran after all of the liberals who were against the Shah of Iran, if you remember back in the late 70s, that after they finally deposed him and brought in the Ayatollah Khomeini, that the first thing that the Ayatollah did after he seized power was to kill all the liberals to kill all of the intellectuals and to kill all the homosexuals. And so there was this massive cleansing of, of Iran, and that is what will happen uh, if Islam gains power in Europe or the United States. That is their goal and objective. But there's something that, um, that the liberals who have rejected God hate more than anything else. And that is anyone who represents the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so if you represent their enemy, God, then the enemy of my enemy is their friend. That's what they're thinking. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if uh, Islam is the enemy of the God I am an enemy of, then they must be my friend. And they're totally blind to what is actually, actually going on.
Well, one of the things I wanted to develop a little more this evening is just the dynamics of some of our most destructive sins, the dynamics of fear, love, anger, and hatred. And we're going to see how this works in Saul. Saul is just a a, 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 a test case for us to see what happens when we give ourselves over to these uh, mental attitude sins. Some of this I covered last time. I've expanded it, developed it a little more, reorganized it. First of all, fear is the core orientation of the sin nature. When Adam and Adam sinned, he and Eve were afraid when God walked in the garden. So when the presence of God came into the garden, their response was to go and hide because they were afraid. Fear is their motive. They don't want to be exposed as sinners. So when God spoke to them and said, where are you and why were you hiding um, Adam responded by saying, I heard your voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked. I was exposed as a, as a, as a disobedient sinner, and I hid myself. So that is their orientation to hide. Now, what is, now, so if, if the basic drive lust pattern at the core of our sin nature of self-absorption, and we are naked, uh, emotionally and psychologically because we have uh, we don't have a relationship with God and we're spiritually dead then we try to cover up just like Adam and Eve did with fig leaves it was not effective God had to provide an effective covering but we are in this this state of fear from the moment we're born that is the thrust of your uh, of your sin nature is we are afraid, we are insecure, we are uncertain. What is the antidote biblically to that fear, that uncertainty, that insecurity, and that dread that is at the core of our existence? That's our second point. We can go through, I can go through numerous uh, biblical examples of this. I want to start, and I want you to turn with me to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. This is one of my favorite psalms. I often go back to this. I'm amazed at how much is here, and I'm grateful for the fact that this was one of the exegetical papers I had to write when I was in my second year of Hebrew, and and it just rich with significance. Now we're not going to drill down in it uh, too much, but but we see this in. I'm going to look at three example pa- exemplar passages for the fact that the antidote to fear is always trust in God, not faith in faith, not just believe, but trusting in the promises and the person of God. Now, each of these psalms that we're going to uh, briefly look at uh, this evening are psalms that were written by David in the midst of a specific test situation where he is facing a a people test. Uh, These come later on in his life with some of them. Uh, This one we will study in detail when we get to the section uh, later on in 1 Samuel when he is... uh, uh, hiding in Gath, and the Philistines capture him. That's the opening, uh, um, uh, po- uh, the opening sub, uh, text at the beginning that is in the not in the first verse, but is just above it. To the chief musician, 
set set to, and then it gives us the music that it would have been sent to, set to, the silent dove in distant lands. It's a miktam, that's a form of a psalm, a miktam of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. And so he writes as he's been captured by his enemies. They've surrounded him. They are, uh, he's the one. This is Gath. Who's from Gath? Who's from Gath? Goliath from Gath. So he's captured by the Philistines in Gath. He's the one who's killed the hometown hero. And he's captured by them, and uh, he fears the worst. And so he begins in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He's going to be just destroyed by these Philistines. Uh, Fighting all day, he oppresses me. Everything is a struggle, and he is constantly being assaulted by his enemy, the Philistines. He says, my enemies would hound me all day, for they are many who fight against me, O Most High. We could apply this this to the presidential election and the culture shifts that have occurred in America, the culture war that's going on. It seems as if uh, the battle has been lost, and many people are, are, are discouraged. But David's surrounded by these Philistines from Gath, and he's not discouraged because he understands the battle is the Lord's, and if God is for him, who can be against him? That's what we keep seeing all through this chapter in First Samuel uh, 18, is God is with him. And so he, he sees, my enemies are hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Notice how he uses a title for God that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, that he is the ultimate sovereign ruler above all. He is uh, El Elyon, the God Most High above all other authorities. And then in verse 3 he says, Whenever I am afraid... When you wake up in the middle of the night and you start thinking through all of the little boogeymen in your life that could go, this could go wrong and that could go wrong and what about this and what about that, uh, whenever I am afraid, whenever I worry, whenever I am get being overwhelmed by anxiety, what's the solution? Don't wait till morning to get up and have a cup of coffee and read your Bible but immediately confess sin if necessary and think about trusting God. Rehearse promises. These are some great promises to memorize. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. The Hebrew word here is the word batach, which has the idea of expressing your confidence, relying exclusively, leaning completely uh, upon something, uh, depending completely and totally upon something. And he uses this word three times in this uh, short psalm of uh, 13 verses. He says, whenever, any situation, whatever the circumstances, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And then he says, in God, he puts that right up at the front of that verse to show the object of his trust and the importance of it in God. And then he thinks, he just has sort of a, a shift in his thought and a parenthesis. He says, in God, I'll praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. Again, the word batak, I put my confidence in God. I will not be afraid. That is a dogmatic, indicative statement. Because I'm focusing on God, I will not be afraid. It's mental attitude strength. It is not allowing our minds to go down that road 
where we think that, well, we've lost the election, we failed here, we failed there, these people are in control there, I've got somebody uh, who's always after my job at work, whatever the circumstances may be, the focus is always brought back to God, I, will, I have put my trust in Him, and therefore I will not fear, period. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? That is the thing. What can they do? I mean, if I die, I'm absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. It may be a few days or weeks or years of misery, but when I get to eternity, it won't matter at all. What can flesh do to me? And then he goes on and he talks about uh, about the situation and his call upon God. He, he rehearses what they are doing. They're uh, all day they twist my words, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. Sounds like he's paranoid. The only problem with being paranoid is is if they're really out to get you. And they were. And he says, uh, he calls upon the Lord with his... Uh, he, notice verse 7, he says, Shall they escape by iniquity? Lord, you're righteous. Are you going to allow them to get away with this? Are you going to allow them to get away on the basis of their sin? Aren't you going to hold them accountable? He says, um, in anger then, cast down the peoples, O God. And then he says something fascinating. In verse 8 he says, you number my wanderings. That is, whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm going, you are keeping account of my wanderings. And then he says, put my tears, it's a command, a request rather, to put my tears in your bottle. Now, what that refers to in the ancient world, if somebody were grieving, if if somebody had died and you were grieving and you shed tears, you would take a little bottle that was a tear bottle and you would collect your tears of that grief and you would keep that to remember your grief for the loss of your parents or a child or a spouse, to remember that. And, and that's only that you're paying attention to the reality of that loss. And so what David is saying to the Lord in his request is, pay attention to my suffering. Pay attention to what is going on in my life. Put my tears in your bottle are they not in your book? You know, you've written them down. You keep an account. You keep a record of this. So I know that you're not oblivious. And then in verse 9, it says, When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. So God is for him here in First Samuel 18. God is with him. God is with him. We've seen that three times in the text. Um, verse 10, In God I'll praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. And then verse 11, in God I have put my trust. Because he's put his trust, he can state dogmatically, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And that needs to be a focal point for us. What can man do to us? Now flip over just a few pages to your right to Psalm 112. Psalm 112, I won't spend as much time there. I just want to point out a couple of verses because what we're learning here is that when we're afraid, what do we do? We trust. That is God's provision for fear and all of the emotional uh, complex of sins that spin off 
from fear. Uh, psalm 112 is a psalm. It's not a psalm of David. You note there's no, um, uh, there's no indication of authorship there. And let me just point out a couple of things as we read through the beginning of it. He says, praise the Lord. So the focal point here is it's a praise psalm. And he says, uh, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who delights greatly in his commandments. So the foundation is the character of God who fears the Lord and knowledge of doctrine who greatly uh, delights in his commandments. Second, what's the result of someone who meditates on God's word day and night, as, the, as it says in Psalm 1? His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. That's why the United States was so blessed in the 1600s, the 1700s, and into the 1800s is because of that foundation that was laid for the Word of God. Those generations were blessed because of the fact that they were applying the Scripture. Verse 3, he says, Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. That's the character of God. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. Notice that in verse 6. He will never be shaken. Circumstances aren't going to rock the person who is has his soul shaped by the word of God. Uh, um, he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. And then verse 7 he says, he will not be afraid of evil tidings. Getting the bad news, you're not going to worry about it when you're sleeping at night. You can sleep soundly because you won't be afraid to get up in the morning and watch the news. His heart is steadfast. Why? Because he is trusting in the Lord. That's that word batak again. His confidence in the, is in the Lord. It's not in politics. It's not in the end result of the election. Whether it goes your way or not, God is still in control. Uh, his heart is established. He will not be afraid. Why? Because he's trusting in the Lord. That's the contrast that I want you to understand. Then Psalm 18. Psalm 18, 1 through 4. So we'll turn back. This psalm, Psalm 18, is also a psalm of David. It's addressed to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of Yahweh, who spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said this. So this is a praise psalm after David learns that Saul has been uh, killed and that uh, that his time of testing by Psalm, I mean by Saul, has been has ended. So he rejoices not that Saul is dead, but that this test has been brought to an end, and because God has delivered him, he says, "I will love you, O Lord, my strength." Notice the language here: "The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my strength." in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Look at all those metaphors. All of them speak of strength and power. And he says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Um, now, in verse 2, when it says, 
my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. That's not the word batak. In fact, it's a word here that is different. It's the word chasah, which means uh, a place of refuge, a place where you flee for protection. And it's used metaphorically to refer to um, trust, uh, often especially in uh, poetic literature. Uh, and he said, and what what does he do? He focuses on the the power of God, the character of God. That's the object of his trust. And then he says in verse three, "I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies." So the the worry is handled by focusing on the person and the character of God and on the promises of God. He goes on to say in verse 4, in terms of his circumstances, the pangs of death surrounded me. Many times it looked like Saul would win. The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. And the word there is not the normal word for fear. It's the word ba'at, which means to be terrified. So we see a window into David's soul. The David just isn't some plaster saint who goes through this and he's always just, well, I'm just trusting the Lord and everything's great. He is terrified at times, absolutely terrified that Saul is going to win, but he always has to be brought back, brings himself back by virtue of good, uh, strong mental attitude practices to focus on the character of God. Now, the third thing that I want to point out as we look at this issue of hatred, fear, and anger is that in Scripture, the opposite of fear is love. Usually, we think of the opposite of fear as being something, uh, some kind of uh, being relaxed, uh, not being afraid, uh, being happy. But in Scripture, the uh, contrast to fear is love. First John 4.18 says that there is no fear in love. So if you're a sinner, unsaved, spiritually dead, operating on fear as the basic emotional orientation of your corrupt sin nature, can you really love, biblically love? Not at all, because the scripture says there's no fear in love. It's almost like Tom uh, Hanks saying there's no crying in baseball. If you saw the what was that film? Yeah. Uh, if you saw that, that was a great movie. I love that. Uh, but there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. That is the virtue love of God the Father that, that only a believer have. It casts out fear. Focusing on the character of God and the love of God, um, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. In other words, the one who's fearing is operating on the sin nature because love is a fruit of the Spirit. If you're walking by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first one? Love, joy, peace, patience. So if you're not walking by the Spirit, there's no love. Okay, fourth point. Anger comes when we don't get our way. When something doesn't go the way we want, then we get mad. When we get mad... Uh, then we are giving ourselves over to to anger, and anger can spin off into resentment. It can spin off into bitterness. 
It can even spin off into hatred, hating the person that is blocking us or preventing us from achieving uh, that which, which we want. And so anger is very uh, significant as a mental attitude sin. And as soon as we get angry, we ought to stop. We usually don't because we've already uh, given ourselves out of control. As soon as we give ourselves over to anger, we ought to stop and say, what am I not getting here? What's being blocked? What's preventing me from being relaxed? I'm not getting my way. That's the bottom line. And we ought to say, well, what is it that I'm trying to get that I'm thinking will will make life uh, better for me or work for me or something like that? So what we see with Saul is he wants his kingdom to be the king and to be victorious and successful as the king is what's going to make him happy, not his relationship with God. So he wants the kingdom to make him happy. He wants that power and that prestige. We could think of some other contemporary uh, politicians, perhaps, and he just absolutely loses control, and he's very angry, and so he focuses that anger against David and hatred. After time, if we don't get our way, we don't get that which we think will make life the most meaningful and significant for us, then we get depressed, we get discouraged, and then we get depressed. And then we think that there's no hope, there's no happiness, I can't get X, so I'm just going to be miserable. I'm going to go home and eat dirt. Uh, That's how people often are. They just throw a little pity party. And the other thing that comes along, as I've mentioned already, is hatred. Hatred comes when we direct our anger toward the person we believe is preventing us from achieving what we think is necessary for life, for real meaningful happiness and joy. It's not that relationship with God. It's people acting a certain way, events coming out a certain way, circumstances turning out a certain way. And if we get that, then we can be happy. So we see that fear leads to anger, and anger leads to uh, hatred. And it leads to hatred towards God's representatives. I want to give you a great example of this in Genesis chapter 37. Now, this is the uh, episode that talks about Joseph's coat of many colors. And if we look at the beginning of this chapter, we read that Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, or a sojourner in the land of Canaan. And now this is the history of Jacob. Uh, Joseph was 17 years old. He was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. See, they want daddy's approval. They want to do well in the eyes of their father, and uh, at the very least, they don't want Jacob uh, getting mad at them or getting angry at them. And, and these brothers, are they're 30, 40 years old by this time. Remember, Joseph is... Um, and 17, according to the text, and he's the next to the youngest. The youngest was Benjamin. So, so uh, Joseph is uh, much younger. These other brothers are all the way up into their, up into their 30s. And so uh, he is going to tattle on them. He's going to report on them. And we read now, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children 
because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a tunic of many colors. He made him a a, a garment that was uh, magnificent. It was beautiful, and uh, but it showed that he was worthy of special privilege from the father. And so it makes the other brothers angry because what they want is their father's approval. Joseph is preventing that. Joseph, They're not getting their way. Joseph is blocking that. And so the result is that they're going to get angry, and they're going to direct that anger at Joseph. They're going to hate him. Uh, verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to them. This is dominated. Their whole life is characterized by this hatred. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more, so much so that eventually this leads to their attempt uh, to murder him, and which is blocked only by uh, Raven, who says, uh, well, maybe let's just put him in a uh, a pit or sell him into into slavery, but he blocks their their action. But the point I want to show is that when you are a representative of God and you're doing God's business, then those who are not uh, are going to hate you, and they're going to react to you, and they're going to call you names, and they're going to accuse you of all kinds of things that are unjustified, and you have to handle that without getting angry. Uh, without being resentful, without hating, and or to relax and, and uh, use the opportunity uh, to minister for the Lord. So the seventh point here is that all of these things are the outworking of the self-absorbed orientation of our sin nature. Anger, uh, fear, anger, hatred, resentment, bitterness, hostility, all of that are just evidence of sin nature control. But point eight, in contrast, when our happiness is based on the Lord and not circumstances, events, or people, then we can have joy even when everything is taken from us. The Lord had joy on the cross. He had joy even in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane when he is under so much pressure as he thinks about what he's going to encounter the next day that he is sweating drops of blood uh, through his skin. He, scripture says that he was grieving, he was sorrowful, he had all of the, but he didn't let those emotions control his reaction to what was coming. In John fifteen eleven, Jesus told his disciples, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And James tells us that we're to count it all joy whenever we encounter various trials, every different kind of testing. And so David is going through this testing. He is going to be tested by Saul. He is going to be accused unjustly. He is going to be persecuted. He is going to be chased. All of these things are going to happen to him, but we have to watch how he responds. It is a tremendous lesson in his humility and grace orientation. As a result of the way that he conducts himself with honor and with integrity, all of Israel and Judah loved him. We read in verse verse 16. They, they admired him, so his popularity with the people increases. Now, we see Saul uh, in operation. So watch his little sin nature at work as he's trying to manipulate the circumstances 
And he is going to try to manipulate this situation so that David will die. He wants to kill David. He's tried on two occasions already, but now he's going to come up with a plan that will make it look like uh, he wasn't responsible. And so he he comes up with this idea. But, but before he does that, um, as part of this, he's going to just possibly trying to get back at David. Verse 17, we read that Saul says, Here's my older daughter, Merav. I will give her to you as a wife. So he makes this promise. And he says, Only be valiant. Now that sounds like a condition in the English. It's not that. It is really a statement of his obligations to continue to be a strong warrior. And he says, Notice how how he's, he brings in the spiritual uh, tone. He's going to use the right words. And so often that's what politicians do is they try to cloak their nefarious schemes in all of the right words and the right attitudes, and they invoke the name of God and they invoke the name of, um, of, of the Constitution while they're doing just the opposite. He says only... Uh, be valiant for me, fight the Lord's battles. But what he's really thinking is exposed by Scripture. What he's really thinking is, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So he is coming up with a scheme to trap David. Then verse 19, we're told, or let me look at verse verse 18 quickly. Uh, And the... um, Wrong page. Verse 20. Now, uh, we're told as sort of a parenthetical. Uh, no, excuse me, verse 18. So, so David said to Saul, and we see his humility here. This is his grace orientation in, in, in verse 18, which I don't have on the screen right now. Verse 18. So David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's life, my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. Now, this isn't a false humility. David recognizes that his grandmothers, uh, our great-grandmothers of Moabitess, and that uh, uh, he comes from a modest family, of, uh, uh, and he's been a shepherd. He's, he recognizes that he is not someone uh, who has any natural right uh, to be the king of, of Israel. So he demonstrates his grace orientation. But what we see in contrast, because that verse comes in between 17 and 19, is we see this capriciousness of Saul. He can't be true to his word. And so on the one hand, he's promised his daughter to whoever kills Goliath, but then he's going to go back on it. And in verse 19, even though he has said all these wonderful things in verse 17, he goes right back on his word and gives uh, Mirab away to Adriel the Mahalathite, as a wife. Now, we'll come back to that in just a minute, but I ran across this comment in Lang's commentary on the Bible, which I thought was particularly appropriate for uh, where we are today. The finer the words, the greater the deceit. Now, we could hang that on a lot of politicians. The finer the words, the greater the deceit. And the commentator says, Further, Saul would rather see the Philistines triumph than David survive. 
You know, it's a sad thing that there are a lot of Republicans who would rather see Hillary get elected president than than to win. A total loss of position and power. And frankly, until the Republicans can recognize, like the Democrats, that it's all about power and getting power, which means you unite, you don't shoot each other, Republicans and conservatives will never gain the White House. They will never gain power because they are so divided. They are so filled with arrogance and self-righteousness. They are like the Jews in, in the 66 War of Rebellion against uh, Rome. They are so filled with self-righteousness that they would rather shoot each other than shoot the enemy. And until that changes, there's no hope in the Republican Party. On that positive note, be reminded that God is our hope, not the Republican Party. So what happens to Mirab is she gets married off to Adriel, the Mahalathite, and down the road, uh, they're going to give them and their five or their uh, five children to the Gibeonites. Saul's going to because Saul went back on on Joshua's word to the Gibeonites. When the Gibeonites want justice from David, David recognizes the legitimacy of their claim and says, "Well, what do you want?" And they said, well, we've had our people massacred by Saul that went against the covenant with Joshua, and so we want to have uh, Saul's descendants, and we will, um, we will execute them. And that's what they did. So they didn't have, uh, Mirab did not have a, a, a good ending. Now we're told in verse 20 that, and this is a, it looks like Mich- M- Michael almost in English. The Hebrew is a little different, difficult to pronounce. It's Michel, and uh, for ease of pronunciation, we'll just call her Michelle. So Michelle is Saul's daughter, and she loved David, and they told Saul, and Saul was pleased. Now here we see his nasty little conspiratorial mind and his arrogance working. Ah, another way to trap David. Because he's he's gone back on his word once, but now he says, I still got a little pang of conscience. I'm still going to give him my daughter. So uh, Michelle likes him, so I'll give her uh, to David. And this is his thinking. He says, I'll give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now, this is, this is interesting because he's already formulated a plan uh, in order to uh, uh, get a special dowry uh, for, for Michelle that will put David's life at risk and put him in danger of being slaughtered by the, uh, by, by the Philistines. And so he could be thinking that the reason she's going to be a snare to him is because since she loves him, he'll, he'll want to marry her, and then he'll do whatever I ask him to do, and that'll be the end of David. That's one possibility. The word that is translated snare is a word that is often used of the snare of idolatry. It's used about eight or nine times in the Scripture. With one exception, it always refers to the snare of idolatry. Exodus twenty-three thirty-three. God says, <clears throat> They shall not dwell in your land, 
lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, that is the Canaanite gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And Exodus 34.12, he says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. Joshua repeats this. Joshua 23.13, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you. It's repeated in Judges 3, and then in Judges 8.27, Gideon set up an ephod that the people worshipped as an idol, and it became a snare to Gideon and his house. And then Psalm 106.36 says that they served their idols, which became a snare uh, to them. So that's the basic idea there. Now then at the end of verse 21, we're told, Therefore Saul said to David a second time. See, he had already promised Mirab the first time. Now he's going to make a second promise. Okay, I'm going to give you Michelle, and you'll be my son-in-law uh, today. So he commanded his servants. He said, Now communicate this to David, and that the king really likes you. And uh, all his servants love you. Now become the king's son-in-law. Entice him this way. Um, but we continue to see the contrast between Saul's self-absorption and David's humility because verse 23 at the bottom repeats what's in verse 18. Saul's servant spoke these words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and a lightly esteemed man? He's not seeking power, prestige, or position for himself. It doesn't, that, that is not something that motivates David. David is motivated at this point uh, by his uh, love for the Lord. And so this leads to Saul's third attempt where he comes up with this idea that he says to David, well, here's your dowry. You're going to bring me a hundred foreskins from the Philistines. That means you're going to have to kill them and then circumcise them because they won't stand still for it uh, otherwise. So they, he says, I want a hundred foreskins, and his real plan is that David will become endangered and will be killed. So when they told him these things, it pleased David. Notice that. This is a warrior who's, he loves the battle, and he pleased him because now he can go kill the Lord's enemies. And so he's enthusiastic. The days had not expired means that Saul had set some sort of time limit on it, and it wasn't expired yet. So David went and took his men with him and killed 200 Philistines. So if you're going to go to do something for the glory of God, you do it to the maximum. And so he ta doesn't just kill 100, he kills 200. And he brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Now, you know, I could go into some interesting um, uh, uh, evaluation and explanation of what's going on here, but ever since Bill Clinton was the president and the news media has so uh, devalued the currency of our language and we, using, we are exposed on the news and TV and everything else to all kinds of language we, and things we never would have heard before, I'm not going to go there. You can use your own imagination. So uh, David brings in the dowry, and then Saul gave him Michelle as his wife. And then the closing part of the chapter we learn, Saul saw and knew at that point that the Lord was with David. Third time we've seen this, and that Michelle, Saul's daughter, loved him. 
And Saul, we're told now, was still more afraid of David. See, he's on that mental attitude sin roller coaster. Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. And then, we're told, the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely. The contrast between Saul and his mental attitude sins leading to eventually to his self-destruction, and David, wise because of the word of God, more wise than all the servants of Saul, so the result was that his name became highly esteemed. He became the hero of all of Israel. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study through these things, to understand the dynamics, the horrors of giving in to sin nature control of all these mental attitude sins and emotional sins, the sins of fear and anger and hatred, all these things that war against our our soul. Father, challenge us to be thoughtful, conscientious of our thought life and how we react to those that are against us and who are against the truth, that we might not lower ourselves to their level, but we may take the high road of grace and honor and integrity. Father, we pray that for this country, that you would protect us from the evil ones who wish to destroy the freedoms that we have had and the constitutional freedoms that we have had uh, to establish their own power, their own tyranny. And we pray that we might have integrity Uh, enough integrity in this election to prevent those who would seek to destroy the Constitution from having a power base. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.